Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, you're telling me. Producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. The Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals links to the source material from all of our adapted film discussions. Purchasing through our links support the show at no extra cost to you. In Season 12, the focus was big franchises and series. We covered both Paddington films, adapted from the beloved children's book character created by Michael Bond. Oh, I love those films so much. Hugh Grant is perfect. For our Pitch Perfect series, the first film was adapted from Mickey Rapkin's nonfiction book about collegiate acapella competitions. It's like a short story of my life, literally. I lived college acapella. Sing it, brother. I lived college acapella. <laughs> I didn't mean literally. <laughs> You know who you're talking to, right? The Twilight Saga dominated the season with five films adapted from Stephanie Meyer's vampire romance novels, Twilight, New Moon, Eclipse, and the two Breaking Dawn parts. Dominated with awkward romance and nonsense logic is more like it. <laughs> that too. Another Thin Man brought us back to Dashiell Hammett's only Thin Man sequel based on other Hammett material, The Farewell Murder, that wasn't just based on the characters from the first film. We talked about Train Spotting and its sequel, T2 Train Spotting, adapted from Irvine Welsh's novels. Ugh, I hate the sequel's name. I do too. And the entire Lord of the Rings trilogy, adapted from J.R.R. Tolkien's epic fantasy series. Love these. Extended editions all the way, baby. Plus, all the Mission Impossible films based on the 1960s TV series. And we've still got at least one more to go. Members got to hear us chat about The Hustler and The Color of Money, adapted from Walter Tevis's books. Get all of these books and more at our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. Start your next read from the movies we've covered at thenextreel.com slash originals.
I'm Pete Wright. I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. John Wick Chapter 4 is over. Just have fun out there. Same advice? Saying hello. You think your wife can hear you? No. Then why bother? Maybe I'm wrong. You're going to die. Maybe not. Goodbye to you, my trusted friend. A new day is dawning. New ideas, new rules, new management. We've known each other since we were nine. Who is this? The Marquis de Gramont. Challenge him to single combat. Win or lose, it's a way out. I don't sit at the table. Your family does. Please pray for me. I was the black sheep of the family. Man has to look his best when it's time to get married. Or buried. I'm going to need a gun. Goodbye, my friend. It's hard to die. If you win, the table will honor its word. We'll have your freedom. Under the old laws, only one can survive. Failure to meet at sunrise will result in execution. Last words, Winston? Just have fun out there. I want you to find your peace, but a good death only comes after a good life. You and I left a good life behind a long time ago, my friend. Andy, we're talking about John Wick Chapter 4. This is the fourth in the Chad Stahelski, Keanu Reeves, massive, awesome assassin franchise for assassins uh, story. Uh, and it is, uh, we saw it in the theater, uh, and it is new release, but part of it's what a joy that we get to actually include a new release kind of opening weekend movie in a series on this particular show. Here we are, the final, final chapter of <laughs> yeah. John Wick. It's um, It was a thrilling movie to watch, especially coming in hot after enjoying the third one so much, as I said last week. I just, I really had such a great time with this one. Can I say the one moment in this that really kind of took the breath out of the audience that I was watching it with uh, was uh, just kind of the horrifically abrupt and surprising uh, death of Lance Reddick? Uh, his oh character Sharon. That was happened uh, so early. So early, I wasn't expecting it at all. No one in the audience was expecting it. What somebody in the audience, uh, as soon as it happened, was like, "Too soon," which was <laughs> yes, funny and tragic. It was yeah. It was a, it was a tough 
uh, thing to have like very early on in the film, but um, it just made me miss him all the more, you know, for sure. Especially because in the third one, like he was right there with uh, with the team going to town protecting the Continental. He was like in it. He was deep in the action. Yeah, he felt like he was getting more more into it than less. Yeah, exactly. The conversation, the thing that was I was most interested in um, is was was he like was he dealing with illness to the point that he felt like I I, I don't have the stamina to do this, you know, this movie to the extent that I need to do it. Like, what was the timing around the decisions made around his death? And my understanding is the there weren't like that this was written in the in in the show right like every this was written in the movie originally the plan was and and this is what Stahelski said I hope Lance doesn't hate me when you kill a character especially someone that's beloved the first gut reaction is even to us it's a gag you know we don't have any better ideas so let's just kill somebody and we'll do the Game of Thrones thing and just make you feel you know crappy and um, you know his uh, Reddick's <laughs> Reddick just talks about how he was shocked that this was going to be how his character was going to go out. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty brutal. Yeah, I can't imagine that there were... My understanding with his health, that it was all just natural causes, like, I mean, he was out beforehand, he was out promoting the film. I I didn't have any sense at all that that he had been ill or anything like that. I think that he was totally fine, did the film was doing the promo and stuff and then just something happened and that was uh, the tragic uh, sad end for him that's the tragedy of current events as they run into movies because like my first reaction was clearly he was too valuable to do this clearly there must be something else there must be something else and had he not died i never would have gone that direction right like my brain would not have taken over my lizard brain um because i just like his character so much i will say for my mileage out of that event it didn't feel like a stunt it didn't feel like a gag to me and i think it was earned over the course of the rest of the movie um the the tragedy of the loss of the concierge and what the concierge role has become thanks to lance reddick in this universe i i actually think they did it they did well by it they did well by the loss of this character to talk about, you know, how close he was to Winston and their relationship, their friendship. And, and I thought that was, I thought it was actually smart. Well, and it does two things. It sets up the marquee, Bill Skarsgård's character and his view, his violent view of the world and his position and how he, how he plays things right as a member of the high table. It also sets up the roles of the concierge and how, we see Akira working very diligently with uh, her father, uh, uh, Shimazu Koji, at their continental over in Osaka, and how she is right there with him as well, protecting that hotel. And, uh, I mean, there is obviously the father-daughter relationship between the two of them, but outside of that, it is the concierge working with the manager to protect the hotel, exactly as we had with uh, Sharon and Winston. That is the interesting part as the as this universe sort of be, continues to unfold and the value of these seconds to the in these hotels. And I, I really like that. 
Um, you know, I like that a lot. I, I'm curious your take, since you, you dropped Skarsgård already, I'm curious your take on his role as our, our principal antagonist in this movie, especially with how his character is written uh, is invested in throughout the whole film. The, in the past, our antagonists feel much more like um, situational antagonists, and and they're just sort of brought in with the fight. With fight, there's something about the marquee that feels different to me in this movie than the baddies in the previous three movies. Did you get any sort of vibe there? Uh, in the sense of what? Like, I mean, he's a representative of the high table. He wants. Uh, John Wick dead. He feels like all of this stuff that's been going on is because New York's gotten too loose and he, uh, you know, he wants this problem ended, which I mean, to a certain extent feels very much like kind of the high table. Um, So I'm not, I guess I'm not exactly sure. I'm talking more about how the character is written in this movie and maybe the fact that they cast someone like Skarsgård who has, uh, you know, arguably the most screen cred, uh, of any of the antagonists that we've had so far in the film, in the films, um, he feels to me like they're they're presenting a proper, uh, for lack of a better immediate phrase, a proper Bond villain in this movie that is of more substance than I, I think we've seen in any of the villains in the past. Well, I mean, I guess that's an interesting take. I, I'm trying to like get a read on that but because let's see we had santino in the second film who's also i mean he's his family's a member of the high table he's wanting the seat on the high table and so there is that kind of element of him coming into the story in that capacity uh and in the second film i, I mean I, I guess it's the adjudicator specifically who's the antagonist in that film although she never really comes toe-to-toe with john it's always was his name zero and the adjudicator just didn't like, just wasn't as big a celebrity as as Skarsgård. No, no, and and I guess in the scope of the villains, yeah, I mean Skarsgård certainly actor wise feels like the the biggest of the villains. Uh, yeah, I mean I guess there's a certain capacity you could say. Well, no, I mean I mean we had seen Michael Nickvist in. Ghost Protocol and in the Millennium Trilogy beforehand, he obviously was a fairly big actor in in Europe. So, I mean, if anyone was comparable, I'd maybe say him. He would be probably comparable to Skarsgård, who I don't feel has been in as much as a lot of members of his family. I mean, obviously the two It films and Barbarian. But I do think that what he ends up bringing to the film is he he definitely has this sense of i don't know i mean i guess it's like this elite status and what i actually really enjoy about him as an antagonist in the film which i mean i guess you could argue with the adjudicator probably is that they're not necessarily there to do the fighting themselves like he doesn't feel like he was ever going to be somebody that john wick was going to go toe-to-toe with in a gun and fist fight and blade match right even when we we had a dalliance with it the idea of this this like you know showdown at dawn kind of uh yeah, like we maybe there's a chance and then he he brought in his his nomination to do the fighting for him uh, that that sort of aristocracy 
yeah, aristocracy to that end. It's just the fact that they opt to do a duel itself yeah. is kind of like it separates him from the down and dirty fisticuffs that otherwise, if you can call what John is doing with pretty much everybody else in all of these films, um, it's it's so different than that. It is like a step up to say, oh, we're going to have a duel and it's just one on one and sunrise and all that sort of stuff. And And so it was an interesting way to kind of see how that uh, how that character unfolded as such a different type of villain for Wick to have. Well, maybe that's that's the the way to describe it. He's just he he just feels very different. His eccentricities that come with the entitlements of aristocracy, you know, make him choose to do things that you know if he wasn't dealing in violence, he'd be dealing in what business and you know I, who knows. But in this case, he is the reinvention of the high table, and it is no better cemented that he represents the reinvention of the high table than the fact that in the first 15 minutes of the movie, John kills the one who sits above the table, right? He goes and kills the elder, which does feel like, you know, as he's riding in on horseback and killing the the thugs ahead of him, which I thought was, it was lovely in its way, and it was not lingered upon too long, right? It's John at work in his black suit on a horse in the desert. Okay, it's, that's part of the universe. I, I was I was with that. But the fact that he killed the elder, and they made a point of the fact that, that you know, you're killing me just like the old elder is moved on, like there, this is Menudo, there's always going to be another elder. So, to what lengths futility, John? Like, why, why are you doing this again? Why does it matter? Just keep killing the elders in the desert. I just like that you use Menudo as your touch point. For that. <laughs> Is that, does that date me, that reference? Menudo, the Wiggles, you know, <laughs> whatever it may be, the Elder. <laughs> uh, is Menudo still going? Man, they were big for a while. <laughs> they just keep putting new people in it. I guess I guess the reference needs to be updated to some K-pop band, right? It's just constantly churning out. And anyway, so I, that that to me, I thought was was you know what he represents. Uh, the marquee is the reinvention of the high table and effectively, you know, reallocating authority and power to this hall of the or aristocracy again. Like he's in this like palace. He's in in Paris, like he is in a place that is synonymous with classic, you know, revolutionary aristocracy. He is the one uh, against which others rise up, right? And and uh, so I thought that was a really interesting way to take this character and to update kind of the whole vibe. And and that to me maybe is what makes it feel like a Bond villain. Like he he's in a he's effectively in a lair, and he's he's capricious in how he he deals out his thoughts of justice. And then he's in a stable, and he's doing the thing with the knife to the tracker guy who was awesome. Uh, like it's just all of his decisions are improvisation evil and i think skarsgård really pulled it off like i was i just was exhilarated and i wasn't even taken uh, out of the movie by his accent which i actually totally worked for me his choices talking about world building and the scope of what they're doing here so 
you know, we've got, okay, so there's the elder who sits above the high table. And again, there's, there's a relationship there I'm not exactly sure of, but sure, it's part of the construction of this story. Then you have the high table itself, and that has a number of different families on it. We've, there was the Italian, uh, Camorra mafia that was on the high table. I don't know who, we, we never find out who actually takes their seats after, uh, Gianna and Santino both are killed. Uh, so who knows who's sitting on that? There's Mr. Comey who wanted to get on the table that never does. There is now we've, we've met, um, the Marquis here who, uh, I, I don't know if it's specified, but I'm assuming he's the, the French member of the high table. And then John's family, uh, that we end up finding out about and how they are also on the high table. And he has to, uh, cut this deal with them to actually uh, to get them to it's this whole thing like his family has to create this formal challenge somebody on the high table has to create a formal challenge and so by doing this deed for them he kind of is able to do that so we're setting up these different levels of the high table and then you have the people who work under the high table directly and that was like in the last film we had the adjudicator who works for the high table and is somebody who is sent out to kind of do their bidding in this film we end up meeting clancy brown he's the harbinger who works for the high table and i guess i'm not exactly sure what the difference is other than i think the adjudicator is like i don't know the judge for the high table is that a fair way to uh to say uh and then the uh, the yeah. harbinger is the one who I don't know. I guess I'm trying to figure out like what the difference between the two, the adjudicator and the harbinger are. The the harbinger, I the way I look at the harbinger, I mean, I just look at the word. Like the harbinger is a messenger, right? Somebody who delivers the sure, message okay. of something coming after. And so I felt like Clancy Brown's role was as more of a conciliary. And so he delivers the message on behalf of the marquee. Like he he is, uh, my understanding was, if, if we look at the organizational chart of the high table that we have the the adjudicator works directly for the high table the harbinger works directly for the marquee i don't think that's right i think i think he works directly for the high table and because the marquee has been tasked by the high table to have whatever resources he needs to stop john wick like he is the member of the high table who's sent to do this because he sa- he has some words with the marquee several times about i don't think the high table is gonna like this decision like i feel like he is their messenger but because he's because the marquee is also like working directly for the high table to do all this and has been tasked to do whatever he needs i think he then still has to do it because he technically is still the high table. Okay, yeah, and I get that. As soon as I as soon as I said it, I remember that scene where he where you're talking about the that he's talking about the high table. Not looking forward to that. I can, I can totally see that. But the substantive difference to to my eye is that he does not sit in judgment on behalf of the high table as the adjudicator did. Sure, his his role is different. And even at the end, when he's the he's like the referee for the duel, he's just that's just because he is the the indifferent person in the in the duel right like he and to your point he doesn't represent the marquee in that case he just represents the guy to who who sets the rules and and ensures that they are followed yeah if if i if there was an issue i had with the character as a harbinger it's the fact that he was then also running the uh the duel because it didn't seem like that would be 
a role for the harbinger. Like when he comes and like does his timer and stuff like that. Okay. He's, he's giving them the warning. Hey, you're about to be shut down and we're going to blow your building up. Like he is very specifically tasked with those sorts of things. Then when he is now also running the duel, it just seemed like, well, Hey, we're already paying for Clancy Brown. Can we, can we combine a few characters <laughs> and, and have, have the duel judge also be him? And it, that was one thing I'm like, I don't know if that would be the harbinger, but it's, it didn't bother me too much because I really enjoyed seeing Clancy Brown in the role. Because we already have Clancy Brown. <laughs> I, can't do it. I, yes, maybe, but I, you know what? I, I absolutely share that issue. And I thought about it and the duel. Why is Clancy Brown doing that? But who else are they going to get in, in terms of economy of characters? I can't think of another character that would be more suited without introducing a new character. Obviously, it's a role that they probably didn't have filled because it sounds like they hadn't had a duel in a very, very, very long time. It was kind of an old rule that they hadn't been following. So maybe that's why it's the Harbinger, because it's like, we haven't done one of these in hundreds of years, so have him do it. Yeah. Who else knows how to do it? So anyway, that's. I just wanted to kind of like, I, I was, there was some new characters, new kind of uh, delineation as far as roles in this in the world. And so I did want to chat a little bit about that. And I guess also, let's talk a little bit about the setup between stories and, you know, what is getting dropped as we jump from one story to the next specifically. I mean, we've had that, we've had elements dropped each time they've moved into a different film. And in this film, the thing that I was puzzled the most by as this film started is, you know, we have John in the care of the Bowery King. John's been healing up, getting himself ready to go after the high table and do what he needs to do to bring all these people down. And the Bowery King sponsors him, helps him get over to Morocco and sets him up again to be working with Winston. So we have kind of that relationship forming between them. And then the Bowery King and like that whole anger at the end of the third film about how pissed off the two of them were at everything. But then the Bowery King is largely dropped from the story. Yes. I was a little disappointed that as somebody who was so pissed off at the end of the last film, who is kind of left for dead, all he is is just like, yeah, I'm, I'm right behind you. Go get him. And that's kind of all we get of Lawrence Fishburne. Yeah, right. Lawrence Fishburne gets to give him the suit, gets to give him the gun, and sends it and gets him in the into locations using the sewer. Right. I mean that that it feels like it is really uh, minimized. And if there is any, I think to your point, that inconsistency of story, like it felt so natural to set him up as a, a potential partner to John Wick going forward. I, the the counter argument to that is. John Wick has no partner. John Wick is the Baba Yaga, right? Like, he doesn't get a partner. He never gets a partner. So for the utility of the story itself, we have to minimize the Bowery King if we're going to keep up with the legend of John Wick. So I can see it on both sides. The The challenge is, why did they make the Bowery King such an impassioned character at the end of three? That transition could have been made easy if they had changed a little bit with the Bowery King in, in three, I feel like. Maybe a post-credits scene. There, well, certainly. And there also is this element that I suppose, like, at the time they were initially talking about getting this thing underway, they were planning on shooting John Wick 4 and John Wick 5 back-to-back. -back. They were going to shoot them both, and then COVID hit, and and 
then Keanu's schedule was busy with the Matrix 4 and everything kind of got bumped until post-COVID in 2022. And so it was, it was a much delayed film. And I suppose there's an element where over the period of time that they ended up having to work on the script, they said, you know what, do we need a fifth film? I, I know that Stahelski and Reeves have both said they they love to keep doing these films. Keanu said it, uh, that he'll keep doing it as long as the audience wants it. Uh, and he can uh, keep up with the uh, what John Wick needs to be doing. But I, I think Stahelski uh, ended up saying that he was feeling concerned that he didn't feel that there was going to be a whole lot separating the fourth and fifth films and that they were going to end up being too similar. And so I guess part of me wonders if at the time when they were kind of tentatively planning a fourth and fifth film, if the Bowery King's role was larger over the course of what they were going to do. And then as they kind of condensed and squeezed things down to just this one film, because it feels a pretty definitive end to this particular film, the Bowery King's role and that kind of story thread just was largely diminished. Yeah, I think so. I'll, I'll, and, you know, the <laughs> to your point, definitive end, like, I guess there is room for them to sort of walk back the, the, the way the movie ends with, uh, you know, I don't know if you're listening to this new movie, but <laughs> go see it first. Stop here. The, the way the movie ends with John Wick, presumably dead on the steps. Like, uh, I, I think it's over for John Wick. I think it's really over. But, you know, I, he's been badly damaged before and come back. The difference was at the end of three, he lifts his hand up and flips off the Bowery King, so he's not effectively dead after falling off the Continental. But in this case, it feels dead. It feels like a sentimental and emotional death, which is what we've been kind of waiting for for this character, to feel like he was truly finished. And I got that sense. I got that sense. And then they add a post-credit sequence. The first time in the series that they give us a post-credit sequence that doesn't involve John Wick. Uh, and I guess my question is, was that a satisfying way to end this movie, uh, or was it an obvious precursor to some next spinoff of in this universe? Uh, I didn't read it that way. I felt it was uh, as as touching and powerful and emotional and and uh, really like successful of an ending of the film we had with a beautiful like powerful moment between John and Kane as these two friends, these two, two old friends who had to go through this duel against each other like that, that final scene between them was just so touching. I mean, I was almost, you know, I almost was in tears. It was really just kind of a great end to this character and this relationship. And it played incredibly well. The whole end was so satisfying with uh, John talking to Winston and then going down and sitting on the, the steps, uh, you know, below the uh, the Sacre Coeur and uh, and dying on the steps as the sun was coming up. I mean, it was it was a touching, touching, beautiful, beautiful end to the story itself. And then I felt like the post credits scene was just that reminder of the world that we live in, where actions always uh, there are always consequences. And Kane, who had killed uh shimazu earlier in the film at the osaka continental his daughter akira said i either you kill him john or i will and this is the that you know actions have consequences moment here where 
as wonderful as, as it is to see that Kane is finally about to reunite with his daughter, it's our reminder that's not the world. We don't get a world of happy reunions. We get a world of blood and vengeance. And that's what that's how the story ends. Like, nope, he doesn't get a happy ending either. It's a pretty I, I don't know. I felt it was kind of perfect to put that on there. I didn't think it was necessarily setting us up for something uh, more. I don't know. I I'm I think maybe I'm uh, I'm a little bit jaded be, uh, about post credit sequences because they have they have so cemented themselves as uh, as something that is a transitional to another property or another film right now. That just seems to be where we are. I I can't that the the, the post credit sequences that are that are used so heavily tend to be transitions to something else. Well, now nowadays, I I, I don't think that yeah, it was the initial intention of them. Yeah. Of course not. No, of course not. And and it is possible that post this post credit sequence is just a throwback to when we started doing fun post credit sequences, and it was Ferris Bueller saying, "Why are you still here?" Kind of a thing. For me, the bigger challenge that I have is they've set up Kane as the character who always wins, like he is the blind duelist who always wins, and I have zero belief that she would come up and be able to surprise him and kill him. Zero. I think she's dead. I think Kane wins that fight. And what does that do to, like, then it becomes a, like, a nothing. Then it becomes a nothing burger. Like, it's huge. It's, it's a, I, I don't, I don't love it. I, I mean, even if he ends up killing her, my sense of the way that all of that was staged is that he is almost to his daughter. And if Akira attacks him at that moment, and if he takes her down and kills Akira, his daughter is going to see it, and that will ruin their relationship forever. And so I feel like it's set up in a way where he uh, he can't win. Either he's going to die, or it's going. his daughter's going to see him for who he is, and that's that will... Uh, also end that relationship and so i think it's a i think it creates in this world like you can't have you can't have that happy ending you can't have that escape so there's no universe for you in which the next film in this series is called kane chapter one i mean i mean you know to your point and we'll certainly talk about sequels and remakes but to your point lionsgate is very much happy with the success of this franchise and has told everybody involved we want more and i i mean stahelski and reeves have both said you know i i feel like we're probably done and i mean i, I mean you know here's a quote from stahelski regarding kind of coming back after this he he said John may survive all of this, but at the end of it, there's no happy ending. He's got nowhere to go. Honestly, I challenge you right now. Here's a question to you. How do you effing want me to end it? Do you think he's going to ride off into the effing sunset? He's killed 300 effing people, and he's just going to walk away. Everything's okay. He's just going to fall in love with a love interest. If you're this effing guy, if this guy really existed, how is this guy's day going to end? He's effed for the rest of his life. It's just a matter of time. Yeah, and, and so to that end, it's just like, I like what else will they continue to do? I mean, if it's the story of Kane now, as he's kind of uh, doing the same sort of thing, it's just like 
Okay, yeah, so it's like he he's kills not a- avenging his wife. He's trying to protect his daughter, like if, from the shadows, like whatever that story is. It's the same vibe. Yeah. I am one hundred percent with Stahelski, and it's because, as we've said, the end of this movie is not just a practical ending; it's an emotional ending, and it is a lovely tribute to the three hundred quote effing people that John has killed. And I think that I, I think it's fine right where it is. Uh, I just question like the purpose of this post credit sequence, I, I would love it if I could wrap my head around this being a perfect ending punctuation to the series. I am too cynical that Lionsgate is just using it to transition to this other thing that is going to end up being the same story. When you look at it with through those cynical eyes, I definitely can see that. But I like to view it as... I mean, because if we put this at the end of the actual story, it takes all of the emotion of the f- the finality of John's story out. It like it, you you lose that energy, but it's just a reminder. It's like that that continuing vengeance journey that this film is. Uh, you know, we kind of we have seen time and time again in this franchise. You don't get that in this world. Like you can't, you can't just kill someone and not expect consequences. And it's just a reminder that even with Kane, he killed somebody. Somebody said she's going to kill him, and now she's out for justice. And I just, I, I feel like it's just a reminder. This is the world we're in, and so yeah, I, I, I like it as a final uh, period to the end of this whole thing. And I hope that is where it sits. Yeah, me too. Um, so I'll hold the rest of the commentary on sequels and remakes for a, a little bit later, because first I want to come back and talk to you about Killa. <laughs> because this is the challenge that is set by John's uh, family. He has to go uh, and kill Killa Harkan, the head of the German table. And uh, it, it, this is one of the fantastic uh, fight scenes in a club that are signature John Wick. Lots of water. Um, He goes in and sits down at this poker table, and there is Scott Adkins uh, with giant gold teeth and crazy awesome attitude, and uh, they end up playing a game. Uh, What did you think about Adkins' performance here? I don't think I even realized that it was Scott Adkins. Uh, It was... It it was... So, uh, I mean, I, obviously there's, it's, it's like watching, uh, Colin Farrell in the Batman. Yes. Right. It's, there's just so much prosthetic, so much added on to build this big bulky character that you just don't even recognize the person underneath. And I was blown away by everything in this, uh, sequence, possibly one of my favorite sub-level villains that john has to fight over the course of the franchise like great character really fascinating the way that the whole sequence plays out in the club like everything about it i was uh, i just thought worked exceptionally i had such a great time with everything in this fight sequence it was uh, it was a thrill and and scott adkins really delivered a, a kind of a wholly unique character here i just i really enjoyed this guy yeah i'm i'm trying to wrap my head around what, uh, you know, his, his arc and why I liked it so much. Um, I felt like he is this character who is set up as someone who, um, is, is like got to the point where he is in this crime league by a dint of circumstance and not necessarily power and authority. And 
they really lean in on that, right? He goes, they, they, the fight starts. John and, and, uh, Kane are fighting other guys and, and tracker and like Killa leaves, right? He runs away and, and, then we end up having the signature fight of the sequence between uh, uh, Killa and John Wick, and he is a force. He is a force to be reckoned with, and I love, love, loved that twist. Like it wasn't John just going to assassinate a a mid level nothing of a boss. It was a guy, it was John Wick going to fight a guy who is significant and for some reason didn't want to get his hands dirty. I, I thought it was amazing that entire sequence was just an extraordinary fight i think it absolutely leveled up you know the street fight with common and two which i uh, i really enjoyed i mean i thought that was a, a great way to to handle that fight too but this was um this was just exhausting to watch uh in the best way and it just also speaks to the most insane clubs that are in this world it's like these clubs are in like locations it's like who has who can have a club that is like this like you just don't see clubs that are like so multi-level with these like stone passageways and bridges all over the place i'm like this is just bonkers i but i love it and an extraordinary waste of water (laughs) extraordinary waste of water and i was laughing so much because as all of the fighting is going on through the course of this like so often the dancers they they just keep dancing they're just like yeah we're in a world of assassins you know (laughs) know. as long as they're as long as i kind of step out of their way i'll be fine and it just makes me laugh so much in this film yeah very perfect very funny just perfect so Yeah, well, well, since we're talking about fights, let's talk about some of the other fight sequences through the film. Yeah. There's some great stuff going on over the course of this because we have a variety of different uh, fighters and styles and everything. And, and, you know, we go over to the Osaka uh, Continental and end up in a in a fight with lots of blades it's a very um i mean just a fantastic hotel location again just like the set design production design cinematography everything in this franchise is so over the top just creating a fantastical beautiful neon world i love the look of it but uh yeah i mean what do you think of the fight in osaka because this is where we get not only the battle between the uh, the members of the Osaka Continental with the uh, the members of the Marquis team in those freaky masks that they come in to kind of like take the whole place down. Uh, but then you also this is where you have uh, Shimazu ending up going toe to toe against Kane and uh, along with his uh, Shimazu's daughter Akira as they're kind of fighting Kane and everybody of course is trying to get John. How does all that? Do you like the Osaka fight? Yeah, yeah, very much. And I, I love that it starts with, uh, Shimazu and, and John having a, uh, having their really sober conversation about, you know, grief and loss and what John has brought unto him by even showing up there. And Shimazu is a character whose very existence challenges the ideology of, um, of the table and of this universe. He says, like, we have, you know, are we, are we so foolish to have forgotten that, you know, there's more to friendship and relationships and like debts owed than blood markers like that. It, you know, I'm, I'm paraphrasing clumsily, but that entire aesthetic so fits that character and that 
that part of the universe in Osaka and what he's created at the Continental there. And I, I think it works, uh, it works really, really well. Um, the, the piece that we get, like, uh, that is introduced here are the, the, the minions of the table, right? The tan suit guys. And, they're giants. They're giant men. Are they? Are they? I, I wasn't sure if they were the tables men or or the marquis team. Yeah, but they're all kind of. They're obviously all working together. But I, I know. I feel like the marquis guys all had the marquis lapel pin on them. So okay, you're right. You're right. They did. The um, there there was though, and I'm. I don't know. I'm just. Uh, Chidi is so Chidi is the main guy. Gramont's, Gramont's right hand man, Chidi, backed by high table assassins and Kane. Yeah, yeah. So there is there is some mix of of them, but Chidi is the, so the Marquis guys are the tan suit guys because tan is the color of aristocracy, and <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, and they are they are giant people, and they you can shoot them a hundred times with arrows, and they'll just pull them back out, and it'll be fine. They're fine. They're always fine, and they're massive. I loved it. I mean, I loved everything they get. They're the unstoppable force, and we needed unstoppable force as represent as, as representatives of the high table slash the marquee. Like they have to be the unstoppable force in movie four. Like we we need them, and I I think they're great. Well, yeah. Uh, one element you have, that you I, have questions? No. I well, just <laughs> in in the scope of the high table and their team, like that was one thing that I felt like. Well, we'd already introduced the high tables team in the end of three, when they raid the Continental, the New York Continental, why are these ones different? And I guess I wasn't sure what that, where the delineation is between types of warriors within the High Table's arsenal of, of um, forces. Well, and because the guys, the guys in the suits, in the armor suits with the funky masks in the black, those guys are the high table guys that are very similar to who we saw at the Continental in three, right? But I don't remember them wearing those masks in three. I felt I don't like know that, that was... they wore the funky mask. They did have something on their faces, did they? I Maybe just, they I didn't can't remember. Now. Maybe they didn't. I need no. to. I'm just gonna look. Yeah, I I feel like yeah, I I really liked the split, and I liked the idea that the Marquis guys were effectively dressed. Like John, like they they just wore the suits and the suits were such that it was the same. I have to assume the same sort of Kevlar because they were all doing the thing where they hold up their suits like capes. Oh, was, I love that. Yeah. 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 It was it was really cool to see the the way that they've all adapted to fighting in this world where they have to use their clothing to protect their face as they continue fighting. Um, yeah. For sure. And it's fun to see like those moments when John takes off his his coat and shakes it out and all the bullets <laughs> So good. <laughs> that was oh, very funny. I loved it. So the, there are a number of other principal fights, but the one that I, I texted you about immediately after, Andy, the diorama fight. Well, yeah, I know, but, well, okay, yes. I'm moving too fast for yes, you. Yes, we didn't talk about the blind uh, assassin, Kane, and the way that in the Osaka Continental, like, we get to see exactly how he fights and how he's setting up those little doorbells around the room <laughs> yeah. and and he's using that as a way to hear where people are and and kind of fight and it's like setting up uh, uh donnie yen's character who I, I he's an interesting actor in that you know he ends up 
playing these blind people in so many films like he was also in Rogue One. But I loved the way that we set him up as this character and we get to see how somebody like him can be so effective of an assassin in a world where everybody is running around with guns and, and killing each other. Like he, he is so effective and it was, it was a thrill to kind of watch him the way that he adapts to this world of, of killing people. I think he was he was fantastic. He also the way he plays this character is a little bit cavalier for the universe of John Wick, right? He it feels like he had he had a different maybe identity than uh, another actor would have imbued this character in the John Wick universe. It was a little bit a, a little bit loose. It felt like in his in the way he fought and the way he sort of disregarded the people that he was fighting against. He was once he was engaged in a fight, particularly with minions, he was he was a showpiece. He was a showboat. And I loved that about him. Like I loved the way he he um, he just moves with the 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 sort of freewheeling kind of spirit that's like a the, the confidence, that freewheeling confidence that he has in this movie. It's not as grunt or fight mm, stab rah, you know it, it's really good well and donnie yen like when he was asked to be in this film it was very much a person who was wearing like um you know much more traditional uh, japanese outfits and stuff and and he talked to Ch- stahelski he's like why why does he have to why do i always have to be playing a character into the stereotype why can't i you know, be wearing a suit. Like, why Why wouldn't he be, if, you know, could, can't he be somebody who's as cool as John Wick? And so they, they opted to rework the character into somebody who is as cool as John Wick. And that's, I, I found that kind of exhilarating to see him playing this character who really kind of was at that same level. And, and I, I enjoyed this view of him. And what I found interesting as a comparison between him and John, like when we meet John Wick in the first film, he had left working with uh, the Russians. Like, he had been a, a, a hitman for the Russians. He just was an exceptional one, and everybody recognized that. But essentially, he was working for the Russians. He went through all the stuff that he did over the course of the first two films. And in the third film, he makes an agreement with um, uh, with the Elder that it, he, by killing Winston, he will now be an assassin for the high table. And that's what Donnie Yen's character is. And I found that to be an interesting comparison because this is this is where John would have been had he agreed to kill Winston and he would have ended up this person who never is able to get out. And even when he thinks he can finally take a break, all it takes is a marquee to come up and say, well, tough, you know, you have to come back because you're one of our assassins. Like, you, you're never going to be able to leave the world. And that was a, just a reminder for us that this is what John would have been doing and, uh, you know, why he wanted out. That's a really good point. That's a really good point. Yeah. I'm looking at John Wick Chapter 3 real quick, and I can confirm they do have full face protection. It is absolutely unclear if they're the horrifying mask detail. Yeah. But they have fa- complete face protection. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, it ju- it just seemed like the faces that we see on the masks in this one seemed like I hadn't seen that before. I was like, wow, that's, they were those they are were creepy. Up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they made a point to show it right. This yeah, this right. fight at the end of of chapter three is just lit in that green neon, and everything is obscured by I don't know. Maybe if, maybe if I were watching this on IMAX, I could actually make out the detail. But it's, there's just so much smoke and. And uh, everything's happening so fast, it's hard to see. I think they made a, a real intent 
uh, a real intention to actually show the production detail in some degree of light in this movie in chapter four that I think is really great. Yeah. All right. Well, let's go talk about your favorite fight sequence. Well, I, so this favorite fight sequence, this is the, um, the fight sequence in the house, house, apartment, Anyway, lots of stairs and doors to go through. Um, and we have three parties that are in this in this house. We have the John Wick. John Wick is being hunted by the Marquis guys. And Tracker and his dog are in there as well. And the light is predictably, it, it, dramatically, cinematically lit all over. And, at one, and John is carrying a shotgun with the uh, demon fire shells in it that apparently when they hit, they combust and everything that they hit lights on fire. And it's extraordinary. And so the sequence could have very easily just been another close or or even sort of a proscenium-wide kind of showcase of stunt, stunt work. But in this case, the camera tilts and cranes up so we're directly overhead watching the drama of the fight go around as John is shooting these guys with these flame guns. And it was extraordinary. It took my breath away as we're watching this. Plus, we get the added benefit of some of the horror reveals. You know, one of the signature kind of shots of John Wick is the there is a dark sort of area in the frame and John Wick's face comes out of the darkness, right? We, it, it's, it's, in the, it's in one, two, and three. John Wick is a hunter and that's what he does. He sits in darkness and he comes out of the darkness. And in this movie, in this scene, the dog plays the John Wick role and I absolutely, I was just, I, like, had there been more of an audience, I would have been cheering. I thought that was so great. So great, such great use of the dog, and that scene was incredible. I, I think it was. I think we got two really long shots over the in that diorama mode, um, and uh, it, it was great. What'd you think? Yeah, I absolutely loved it. It was a pretty uh, stunning way to craft this that allowed for those incredibly long. Uh, scenes, uh, those shots, those long takes, as we were tracking with these characters moving around in this space, uh, fighting. It, it just gave the whole fight a different perspective that, uh, you know, we don't often uh, get in fight sequences like this. And just the fact that they opted to do something that really required, I can't even imagine how much uh, rehearsal to get to have everybody in the right places at the right time with the effects doing what they needed to do. And I mean, it was just, it was kind of a, a, a stunning sequence to, to watch unfold. I had just an absolute delight with it. And, and to your point, just like the way that the sequence builds, you know, we've got uh, Mr. Nobody or the tracker, you know, in there with his dog and building to that moment where John saves the dog and that turn that it uh, it allows for uh, Mr. Nobody to take where he's suddenly like mm -hmm. I don't know if I'm going to kill this guy he just saved my dog and there was that moment in that that just I mean it it just worked so well and it wasn't like John even did it intending that right it's just yeah. John right. is the guy who is not going to let the dog die. And when he uh, when he shoots at um, uh, Chidi and uh, knocks him off the balcony and stuff, it's like that's the 
that's who John is. Like he is the guy who's going to protect him. And I just, I loved the, um, I loved the way that that whole scene plays out. And just, I mean, again, yeah. those guns, those fire guns, super cool. Super, super cool. Um, two two other signature sequences in this movie in terms of fight scenes that I, I think uh, represent uh, the uh, radically sort of different production. Uh, the last movie we talked about, the, the dramatic addition of the CG motorcycle fight scene. It was the first major CG, CG sequence. And, and I think we both... Um, uh, my my memory of it of, of our conversation is we both really like that sequence and it is made even better when you watch how they made it it is an extraordinary feat of technology to to actually make that sequence even though they weren't doing a whole lot of actual fighting on motorcycles on the verrazano bridge uh really really great so the circle uh, the paris traffic circle the roundabout uh sequence this one did take me a bit out of the movie. It felt like the CG was so obvious and the reactions to things driving, cars driving by was so obviously not practical in in many situations that it it did take me out of the movie. I felt like a weirdly constructed sequence and it it wasn't my favorite, even though I think it was intended to be a signature sequence of the film. How did that one hit you? Uh, I loved it. I just thought it was uh, a, a fantastic way to give us something different again in this world. And again, just prove that everybody in this world is used to assassins and it's really nothing new because nobody really stops and they just keep driving. <laughs> and it just, I mean, honestly, I just kept laughing through the whole thing because it's like, of course they just keep driving because that's this world of assassins we live in. And I don't know. I found it to be very comical in the uh, in the setup for what we get from this world. And, you know, I don't think that um, I, I haven't seen much as far as like what was CG, what wasn't as they were kind of putting all of this together. I just I found that the um, and in and, and none of it really bugged me either. I just found as I watched it, I'm like, you know, this is a cool place for a fight sequence. And I like that they were trying to find a way to do something again that they hadn't done before and that they really hadn't seen before. I mean, I don't feel like I've seen a fight sequence with so many people in a place where cars just keep coming. And, uh, and it had some fantastic moments like when he throws the guy right into the oncoming motorbike and <laughs> like just like hits the guy in his back. It's like, God, like there yeah, were some, yeah. there were some great, great moments through that whole thing. So I, I, yeah, I, I, I can see why it may bother somebody. I didn't, I didn't worry about it too much. Well, and I think I went in comparing it to, you know, this world of John Wick that is practical and they succeeded with the motorcycle chase in three. And here, every time it turned to characters facing each other and cars driving between them and them kind of doing that thing where they lean back because a car just came by, it just felt fake to me for the first time, I think, in a John Wick series. There, there were sequences, there were shots in this sequence that felt manufactured to me in a way that I was just unaccustomed to. But I, I say that all in contrast to uh, the final sequence on the steps to Sacre Coeur, which I, I thought that fight, that extended fight up and down and up and back down the stairs, the, the 300 steps to Sacre Coeur, was exhilarating. I loved every bit of it. It was a wonderful, wonderful sequence. And the fact that it was... Uh... The, those falls down the stairs were real and uh it was just something that they actually 
accomplished. And I think I, I can't remember exactly. I know I read about it. I feel like the stunt, the stuntman who was playing John Wick did that fall like six times or something like that, just oh, rolling down God. the whole stairs. And uh, because, you know, as they were saying, it's like, it's going to, it's going to hurt. It's going to be hard. But you want to be able to say that you were the person who did it. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. I think that's what a lot of these stunt people look at in scenes like this. And uh, I just, I found yes. that to be really, really funny. And uh, it speaks to kind of just this, um, why a lot of people probably want to be involved in these films and do some of this stuff because they get to do a lot of, a lot of things like these uh, incredible stair falls. Uh, that was, it was oh, a God, stunning, was... stunning sequence. Yeah. I, when I was living over there, I, I, so I went to Sakakur and we toured the Basilica and it's very, very cool. And I found like, I was, I was talking to my son afterwards about just the, the level of exhaustion. Like, even if you're young and strong and feel like you have no problem climbing stairs, climbing those stairs, it feels like there's an extra degree of weight on your back, maybe because it's like this sacred place, uh, but it just feels heavy and the stairs are really long and they're, they're just slightly too far apart. Like the steps are too big. So your steps have to be just a little bit big. And by the time you hit 300, you're ready to die. Like you just, are done. <laughs> and so when he falls the entire length of, of the steps, it is, uh, it, it's a, a deeply emotional sense of regret and grief. Uh, I, I thought it was just awesome. It was a, a stunning fall. Like, you know, I want to talk about homages and things that uh, that you know certainly influenced this film. But one thing I didn't see Chad Stahelski reference was uh, there's a Laurel and Hardy uh, short called "The Music Box" uh, that I was like, I, I feel like this should have been mentioned in his stuff, and may, I don't know, maybe he didn't, but. It's a it's in L.A. It's 133 steps that the two characters have to push this uh, giant box up all the way up to the top. It's a piano that they're moving from the bottom all the way up to the top. And it's the same thing. Like they get a part way up and then it slips and then it rolls all the way back down. And it takes forever for them to get all the way up to the top. And by the time they do, they realize that the road that they started on at the bottom actually curves around and ends up at the top and they could have driven it up. And it's, just, it's very funny. Like the whole thing is just a, a great um, gag. But the fact that John not only falls down the first set, but then once he gets to that kind of midway point where it angles, like he hits the light pole and that sense yeah. turning. And so he perfectly goes down the whole next set all the way to the bottom. It was so comical. Like I just, I felt like, uh, you know, in our, I mean, in our letterboxed uh, comments last week, you did uh, Demi Adejiwebe's, who mentions that he feels like this franchise, like there's this comedy aspect of it that people don't bring up. And I feel like, well, this is that. Like, this is it. really this funny. Is absolutely it. Yeah. Yeah, it's really funny. I, I think I think that comment, I'm glad you brought that up, because I think that comment really seasoned me well for this movie. Like, I found myself laughing more at this movie possibly as a result of that pivot last week. I mean, geez, you have that moment where he's, I don't know, the art room, I guess we'll call it, in the Osaka Continental, where he's like beating <laughs> right. on somebody, and he's got, I don't know, like a, a, a mallet or something, and it's just like, he keeps just spinning it over and over and over again, hitting the guy in the head like four or five times, the to the nunchuck. point where it's absurd. Yeah, yeah it's just absurd. Yeah. Uh, I love so the nunchucks apparently were rough for Keanu Reeves. I was watching an interview 
uh, about him talking about the fights in this movie. And then the interviewer brought up the nunchucks and all he had to say was, uh, the nunchucks <laughs> never really locked on the nunchucks. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like he's able to do so much, but I kind of felt that it felt like, okay, this is a, this is a stranger in a strange land. Like he's picking yeah. up nunchucks and it's like, feels like the first thing that he has picked up that he is not expert level proficiency with. And he just, hammering on this guy yeah. over and over and over again uh, it, which felt like the most inelegant way for john wick to to take down a, a foe I, I loved it i loved it you're right that was such a comedic bit yeah lots of that so uh, speaking of these homages and references i mean you know we've debated a little bit over the course of this franchise like are these homages or is he just like referencing things and i i feel like if it's an homage it's like a very direct homage and like the beginning of this film i felt this is a direct homage to lawrence of arabia we have uh lawrence fishburne holding this match and and then as he blows it out cut to the sun rising in um in morocco and then as john is chasing those guys on the horseback it's like that was a direct homage to lawrence of arabia absolutely uh sometimes it's just references like he wanted to shoot at soccer core Really just kind of because he loved Amelie so much, which I think is a really funny, um, funny pull that that was the reason that he picked that location. Because it's like, that's the only reason that you really compare Amelie at all to to this crazy franchise. But then (laughs) there is like the direct homage to uh, Walter Hill's The Warriors, where you have this amazing... Uh, moment in Paris as everybody is like the Marquis basically wants everybody to go after John Wick so that he can't make it in time at sunrise to fight uh, to do the duel at the top of uh, at Sacre Coeur, right? And you've got everybody in Paris getting ready. You have a close up of the DJ's mouth as she is kind of telling everybody what's what and then plays nowhere to run. It's like, this is exactly the Warriors. Like that was the whole setup in that film. It's like, what a, that was an absolute homage. And I found that to be um, really a great um, way to kind of play that scene. I also love that just while we were talking about that, just you mentioned the DJ, like the the whole, you know, I, there's a whole bespoke radio station call sign W-U-X-I-A yeah, in right. Paris <laughs> out of the Eiffel Tower that is only for assassins. And I guess they're all just listening to it. Like, it didn't feel like this was a thing that was dedicated to anybody else. Uh, this radio station would be listened to by little Billy on the street, right? Like, this was really just for the assassins. Well, again, Pete, it's a world of assassins. That's all who... That's uh, all the world. world. Little Billy on the street is actually uh, actually picking pockets and, and cutting, like, Achilles tendons as people walk by the sewers. Right. He's so. being trained by uh, by the director at the Ballerina Academy. Yeah, that's exactly right. right. I forgot. I regret that that's I... Right. <laughs> but other, other movies Stahelski mentions in his list of films that um, they may not have been homages necessarily but certainly influences um the let's see the um the good the bad and the ugly uh hero the um zhang yimou film that we've talked about Mm -hmm. um the killer uh chow yun fat uh film they um the matrix of course uh lawrence of arabia already mentioned the grandmaster wong kar wai's film and in the mood for love as far as the use of colors uh the warriors already mentioned and streets of fire as well 
and uh, and Amelie. So it's an interesting list. Oh, and then also just to mention, as far as that overhead, like when when I saw this, I saw this with uh, with Steve um, from the film board, and um, he and I were like, well, it felt very um, taxi driver as far as what Scorsese does in that film, kind of going overhead. Mm-hmm. What Stahelski af- actually referenced is a video game called The Hong Kong Massacre, and that was a game where it was entirely from the top-down perspective, and that was kind of his uh, his point of reference for creating that sequence. So, yeah, so there you go. It very much felt like that. Like, it does feel like a video game. I loved it. I loved it. It felt like a video game in every way that, that, <laughs> that like, I don't know, any other video game movie does not like this this felt like it in a really sort of satisfying way like i i really enjoyed it maybe it's because it wasn't based on a video game that it makes it more appealing to me yeah what do you think of our new cast members that we haven't talked about I and mean, we talked a little bit about donnie Yen, bill skarsgård uh we haven't mentioned hiroyuki sonata but i always love seeing him in films as Shim- shimazu uh shamir anderson as mr nobody a- or the tracker i loved shamir anderson here yeah. loved his addition to this movie. He didn't feel shoehorned in at all. He felt like he had agency and a mission and an emotional turn. And I loved his participation here. And so when we talk about sequels and and premakes and remakes and all those things, you put this guy in one of those movies with the dog, I am in the seat with a paid theatrical ticket. I don't know if I've seen him in anything before, but I absolutely loved every moment of him on screen. He was a fascinating character, really interesting, just kind of the way that his story played out and the fact that, like, I mean, <laughs> something that we have talked about before in a more of a joking way, but the idea that a lot of these people who aren't going after John when there's all these rewards on his head, it's because the money's not there. And even though it's like seven or 14 or 26 million or whatever, and this is our guy, right? He is going to go after John, but he wants to get as close to 50 million as possible. And I thought that was very funny. So, uh, but yeah, fantastic (laughs) addition to the franchise. Really, really good. Um, Was there, I I think, was that, so we we get uh, Rina Sawayama as Akira. um, Yes, yes. She was great. Uh, Really. She was. She was great. Yeah. And another person that I was like, I don't know if I've, uh, I, well, this, I believe, is her first film, so hasn't been in much, but is very much a performer as uh, somebody who has been singing and modeling and doing quite a bit uh, for uh, most of her life. A uh, very busy person, but she worked perfectly in this world. I loved her. Yeah. Okay. Is there anybody else that was new to the cast that we need to talk about besides we've got Scott Atkins, Rena Sawayama, Shamir Anderson, and Bill Skarsgård, Donnie Yen? I think we got them. Well, there was Natalia Tina uh, playing Katya, his, uh, John's adoptive sister. And, you know, she's one of those faces that oh, right. um, is a very small part, but I always enjoy seeing her when I do see her on screen. Um, I largely think of her from the Harry Potter films because uh, she plays uh, Nymphadora Tonks in those. Uh, she oh and she was also in game of thrones so uh she is a face that i really enjoy seeing i thought she was uh worked well in this in this role of kind of this uh ruska roma uh family that he was a part of so um just another small thing but i i do enjoy kind of like that element of it yeah for sure she's a she's a real chameleon like she really i i feel like at, until i say all of those major properties that she's in i i can't picture her 
individually in any of them, right? Like she's, I think Nivadora Tonks is one that, I mean, she's plays kind of the shape-shifting sort of wizard, different hair and all that stuff. Uh, but as a, she was a, uh, one of the, I think she was one of the, like, uh, wildings in in Game of Thrones. And I, she was, she's just great. Just great. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, we... <laughs> We should mention that her first film, which we uh, talked about uh, on this show back in, I believe, a romantic comedy series, was about a boy where she was Ellie. She was the school crush of our young uh, Nicholas Holt. Well, that means we are too old. <laughs> that movie feels like it just came out. <laughs> I know. She was much younger <laughs> than she was in this movie. Oh, God. Yeah. Oh, God. Oh, God. Make it stop. All right. Well, I mean, the film looked fantastic. Everything about it uh, was uh, just gorgeous. Again, the wonderful cinematography by Dan Lauston. And uh, just, I mean, it was just, uh, uh, I don't know, for me, it was a pretty stunning film. Uh, did you notice the difference in writers in this one? You know, I kind of feel like I, I did, but maybe that's how it manifests for me to describe the the difference in the way, you know, the marquee is per, is portrayed, like is written like that. That is is probably um, that this just feels like it's a movie that has an intended larger single arc and, and much less sort of segmented approach to violence. I, I think that may be it, but I don't feel like I noticed anything different. I felt like they had a really good hand on on maintaining continuity of character, um, which is, for me, most important. It was just, I mean, it was interesting to read that the studio opted to move on from Derek Kolstad. I don't know if what the story was between the two of them, but it was a surprise that uh, that they opted to just say, nope, I don't know, maybe he's too busy with nobody, which I know he was writing and producing. Uh, but that's when Shay Hatton came on, and then uh, almost a year later, Stahelski brought Ricky Staub and Dan Walzer on. He had seen the film that they wrote, Co Concrete Cowboy. And then they, the studio, I, I don't know if the studio, but they ended up bringing on Michael Finch, who had written Predators, which I thought was um, an interesting, not uh, great Predators film but an interesting one for sure. So, I mean, it's just interesting that they dropped Derek and ended up having to bring on four different people to work on the script for this. Um, yeah, I guess to your point, there might be some feeling of some of the change, but for my money, I didn't, it didn't bother me. Not at all. No, it felt like they all had a really good sense of, of tone of the universe. Well, anything else or should we wrap things up? No, I, I think that covers it for me. All right, well, we will be right back, but first, our credits. The Next Reel is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson, music by Thomas Herodek, Oriel Novella, and Eli Kaplan. Andy usually finds all the stats for the awards and numbers at the-numbers.com, boxofficemojo.com, imdb.com, and wikipedia.org. Find the show at truestory.fm. And if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. All right, Andy, here's the, this is the big reveal, right? This is our big reveal of sequels and remakes. Finally. Prepare to pull back the curtain. Finally, Finally yes. Talk about it. 
Well, uh, we have mentioned them in passing a little bit. Ballerina, obviously, is already, I think it's in post-production right now. And uh, Ana de Armas was cast to play the the uh, the title character, the ballerina assassin named Rooney, who I guess it's intended to be the same ballerina that we saw in John Wick Chapter 3, um, who um, Unity uh, Phelan played in that particular film. But Ian McShane is back as Winston. Keanu is back as John. This whole story of the ballerina takes place between John Wick Chapter 3 and Chapter 4. So I'm wondering if we're going to get a a sense of... Uh, interestingly, I don't see that Lawrence Fishburne is involved. And so I, I was like wondering, are we going to get more as to what's going on in that period when... John and Winston aren't talking. John is healing. The Bowery King is, uh, you know, taking care of him, and he and John are plotting, or what? I'm not exactly sure, but that's that's the film. And and we should add, Lance Reddick is listed as a cameo. Uh, yeah, he was in, in it as well. In Ballerina, yeah. Sharon, yeah. and uh, and that's one of two films, not the other one, not um, not John Wick, uh, not related to John Wick, but one of two posthumous releases looks like that's that'll wrap his career and len len wiseman is directing it who um you know we've talked about a lot because we did all the underworld films yeah right right curious how that's gonna shake out len wiseman but i do love anna de armas and i think she's a fantastic action star and i'm so curious how this is going to play out so i'm really looking forward to it It, it says that rooney is hunting the murderers of her family so that's the story so yeah we'll see we'll see What's the story on the Continental? Yeah, that's the other thing. Uh, it's, I believe, just still in development. No, actually, they started filming in November 2021. And I don't know. Oh, my gosh. I don't, I don't know what has happened with it. It's a, uh, it looks like Stars sold it to Peacock. And uh, it was now they say that uh, I guess Lionsgate is saying that it's they're hoping to release it late 2023, saying that the episodes are nearly finished. But it looks just like three episodes, Um, not a very long series. Albert Hughes, who we've talked about in our Hughes Brothers series, directed the first and third episodes. So uh, it's a prequel. We do know that. Wow. I don't know. I'm curious about it. It's the story of how. Winston came to his position as proprietor of the Continental in the 70s, establishing a safe haven for for assassins where no business may take place. It explores real-world events, including the Great Garbage Strike and the American Mafia's rise to economic power. I, you know, I mean, you you talk about doing a universe-building spinoff of this franchise. This is what I'm looking for, right? As my my John Wick fandom really wants to play in, in this area. Yeah. And so I'm, I, you know, it, it's a little bit disconcerting that it feels like the property's been tossed around as much as it has, and that it's a limited series, like three, yeah, episodes feels like not enough, not enough to me. I'm wondering if it's just one of those things where they want to just see how it does before they commit to yeah. doing more. Well, and anytime you have them say like, "We just really hope to bring it out in 2023," that feels non-committal to me. Like that, that feels lousy. Yeah. Mel Gibson is in it. Um, there's an adjudicator in it. And interestingly, there are two characters in it named Hansel and Gretel, which <laughs> makes me wonder uh, how that's going to come in. Okay. Play. Yeah. We okay. shall see. 
Anyway, okay. anyway, that's uh, that's it as far as sequels and remakes for this. Uh, as we said at this point, no John Wick Chapter Five. And speaking of things that we have none of yet, I'm assuming we don't have any announcements on any awards because the movie's <laughs> been out for a week. <laughs> nothing yet. Nothing yet. Other than uh, fans uh, awarding it with money. Okay, so let's talk about it. How's it doing at the box office a weekend? Well, for chapter four of the story, Stahelski and his team had a whopping $90 million, which is more than twice what the last film had. The movie just opened March 24th, 2023, opposite a good person, and sadly, a week after Lance Reddick passed away. It did open in first place and took in $73.8 million domestically and $64 million internationally on its opening weekend for a total gross of $137.8 million. At the time of this recording, it's almost earned $153 million internationally. That already puts it in the black, barring any prints and advertising costs that I don't have access to. Still, it is likely to cover that as well. As for its adjusted profit per finished minute, up to this point, it's already at $283,000, so it's looking pretty good for Mr. Wick. Oh, that's fantastic. I'm really glad to see it, and uh, I'm I'm looking forward to more exploration of the universe. I really enjoyed this movie, Andy. Yeah, Yeah, me too. I am really... Uh, I, I'm really excited to see that they are just trying to do something big and expansive. And in this one, I felt like doing some stuff that's a little more unique, like ending the film with an actual duel at sunrise. Like that was something that felt so different instead of just another uh, another big fight sequence. They're fantastic. Don't get me wrong. But still, it felt unique and it felt different to have it play out that way. For sure. Well, we're moving into another giant franchise. Oh, we sure are. Yes. And in fact, we'll be right back for our ratings on this film. But first, here's the trailer for next week's movie, kicking off our journey through Middle Earth. It is Peter Jackson's 2001 film, The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. Legend tells of a ring created by an ancient evil that gave its wearer the power to enslave the world. The leaves lost for centuries. It has now been found. Is it secret? Is it safe? This is the One Ring, forged by the Dark Lord Sauron. Sauron needs only this ring to cover all the lands of a second darkness. He's seeking it. Seeking it all. His thought is bent on it. No one knows it's here, do they? Do they, Gandalf? The weapon of the enemy is a gift. Let us use it against him. You cannot wield it. None of us can. The ring must be destroyed. It was made in the fires of Mount Doom. Only there can it be unmade. I know what I must do. I'm afraid to do it. One does not simply walk into Mordor. There is no other way. There's something down there.
I sort of wish you had said it like you wrote it. Cloter to Folder? Cloter to Folder. That's, that's <laughs> what it was called in the Scandinavian release. Cloter to Folder. <laughs> Let's all do some hygge and watch Cloter to Folder. Ah. <laughs> 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 oh. So good. Uh, you've heard of Letterboxd, Andy. I know you have because you're what we like to call a Letterboxd addict. And uh, you, you're constantly getting your hits over on Letterboxd. What is it? It's a social media network for movie lovers. And uh, we love it over here. We use it all the time. You can find us at letterboxd.com slash the next reel. And when you log in and create your account and start putting in the movies that you watched and your ratings and reviews and you realize, oh my goodness, I love this so much, but I wish it didn't have all those ads. And I also wish that I could support the fantastic Kiwi team that makes this thing. Uh, what could I possibly do? Well, we can help you there too. If you visit thenextreel.com slash letterboxd, you will be taken over to a checkout page where you can upgrade your free membership to the pro or patron membership, remove the ads, support the team, and get 20% off right there, thenextreel.com slash letterboxd, and it works for renewals as well. Andy, what are you going to do to this movie? What are you going to do to this movie? Yeah. Let me tell you what I'm going to do to this movie. Tell me what you're going to do to this movie, Andy. I, um, surprising perhaps everybody, this film for me is my favorite of the bunch, and I'm even going to give it a half-star bump. Four and a half and a heart for this film. <laughs> I just, I came out of the theater just exhilarated. I loved what they did, and as I said, this is the first one where I really had like an emotional tug, the relationship between uh, John and Kane and that uh, poignant end of this film, like really got to me and uh, I just found it to be very powerful. So four and a half and a heart. I, uh, you know, I, I'll probably also surprise nobody. I really loved this movie and it's hard for me to do anything other than a five star and a heart movie um, here. And maybe that's representative of my no half stars rule. Um, but I, I'm an exuberant five-star uh, viewer of this movie. Uh, so that, that makes for me overall, I mean, I think, the, I think my lowest one was four-star at, at, at the third movie. And overall, I love this franchise. Well, okay. Then how would you rank the four films? Um, this is my favorite of the series, right? So I think it'd be uh, four, one, two, three. Interesting. For me, it would probably be four... Three, one, two. Interesting. Yeah, I know. I, I I'm a little bit of an anomaly. All right, we're not we're not far off. Well, yeah, like we're not far, and and all of these we enjoy. Like, <laughs> like yeah, our critiques are. I mean, they're all four stars in a box anyway. So. <laughs> yeah, right, right. This was a great, great franchise to watch, uh, and and I think you know we we had the conversation early on about the just the glorification of of firearms, and and I still have that issue in our member pre show chat. In our member pre-show chat, you're right. So if you are a member, you can join uh, and and you could be a part of the live live show where we have a little bit of pre-show and post-show. There's a lot of pre and post stuff that goes on, and and you can join us in the live stream. So more about that. Um, but I I feel like that is something that we that can't be overstated. That this is a movie that glorifies the kind of of gun violence, particularly in the United States, that that uh, we're really struggling with. We're, we're hurting here um, as a result of, of the kind of gun violence that this movie celebrates. And so to be able to be a, a viewer that is sophisticated enough to separate um, the, the acts of violence from the acts of cinema, it, it's really important in a movie like this. And, um, and, and I've, I, I feel like 
I can do it and celebrate the the theatricality of this violence, um, and and also be heartbroken at you know what is going on in our in our where we live in our home. Yeah, absolutely. Well, don't forget, everybody, go to thenextreel.com slash letterbox to get your patron or pro membership. It works for renewals as well. And if you go to thenextreel.com slash membership, you can learn about our own membership program, as Pete just talked about. You can uh, get early access to shows, ad-free episodes, member bonus episodes, all sorts of good stuff. So uh, check that out. And that's it for today. So what did you think about John Wick Chapter 4? We would love to hear your thoughts. Hop into the Show Talk channel over in our Discord community, where we will be talking about the movie this week. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Letterbox, give it, Andrew. As Letterbox always doeth. Oh, it's nice to go into Letterbox and see so many exuberant fans of this movie, for which I am also an exuberant fan. Yes, there's so many five star reviews. It's really doing great. Very positive. Um, but but I have I have a very simple one, very simple five star, and it's from Dakota Joaquin. Dakota says, "I can't wait to finally lose my virginity so I can say this was better than sex." <laughs> <laughs> We're all waiting for the day, Dakota. Oh my goodness! All waiting, Dakota. We got you. We're right. We're thinking about you and your sex life, Dakota Joaquin on Letterbox. That's right. <laughs> I've got uh, at this point the uh, one of the uh, highest rated, or no, the highest liked comments on on Letterbox. It is by actually, it is the highest. It is by Patrick Willems, who just has this to say: four stars. Everyone is trying to rip off the way John Wick movies do action. I wish they would also try to rip off the way John Wick movies are really pretty and lit extremely well. <laughs> That's right. Getting to the real heart of the matter, Patrick Willems. <laughs> real heart of the matter. It's uh, awesome. Well, thanks, Letterboxd. You're the best. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022... We switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs>